Hello and welcome to the Centrist podcast this week. We are joined by the Member of Parliament for Kingston and Surbiton, the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change during the coalition. He is also a Lib Dem leadership contender. So welcome, Ed Daly. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for that. No worries at all. We are a pro-European party. Renewable energy generation, renewable energy investment, both more than doubled under us. Um, but I can't see how Dominic Cummings can wriggle out of this one. And I think he ought to do the decent thing today and to resign. Uh, so we'll jump straight into the first question, um, which is what was your journey into politics like and how has it shaped your vision for the country? Well, I guess I was politically aware at school. We used to talk about politics uh, at home, although uh, both my parents had died by the time I was 15. So uh, they weren't that influential. Um, and it was really in my year off between school and university. I read a book called Seeing Green by Jonathan Porritt, and that really got me into the environment. Uh, and then I went and read politics and economics and philosophy, and um, I realised I was a liberal. And um, I was gradually, didn't join a political party at the time. Um, I campaigned in 1987 against the Tories uh, for an organisation called Tactical Voting 87, Tactical Vote 87, um, and which is quite successful in the area we, we were campaigning, which is in Oxford. Uh, we managed to get a Labour MP elected in Oxford East and a very good swing to the Liberal Democrats or the STP Liberal Alliance uh, in Oxford West and Abingdon. So that was my sort of first sort of non, non-party uh, inroad into politics as a sort of anti-conservative. And then um, as I'm, I became stronger in my liberalism, you know, belief in you know, uh, the rights of the individual and freedom and uh, internationalism and the importance of community and so on, um, I ended up applying for a job for the Liberal Democrats, even though I wasn't a party member, to be their economics advisor. And I was most surprised to get interviewed and then very surprised to get the job. And um, I decided to join the party. Um, I was particularly inspired and always been very, uh, since he came along, very uh, uh, enamoured with uh, Paddy Ashdown. So I think it was a combination of things. Uh, my commitment to the environment, which was, you know, predates my political activity, then, then sort of philosophically drawn to the party and then inspired by Paddy. So a combination of things. So I find it quite interesting, actually, one of the things that you mentioned in there was essentially being in, in a, a, an alliance, essentially, to get rid of Conservatives. And what do you think then about the fact that within this leadership race, rightly or wrongly, obviously, but um, it's almost seen as this battle between the sort of left, more left wing and more right wing candidate? And a lot of people would say you're more right wing orange booker, at least in the party's terms, obviously. Um, so what do you think about that general perception? Well, I don't think it's quite right, to be honest. I mean, I'm, um, uh, I believe that um, we do need to have a mixed economy. Um, I don't, I subscribe to the idea that we should go left of the Labour Party, that we should be chasing our Corbynistas and policies like, you know, free energy, free water, free this, free that, which um, some people have uh, suggested might be good ideas. So to that extent, <laughs> I'm not that left wing. Um, but equally, I've always considered myself to be on the centre left of British politics. Um, you know, if you think about um, economics, often one thinks about would you prepare to put taxes up to pay for public services? Uh, I've advocated that all my time in the party. Um, I don't think that puts me on the right um, <laughs> somehow. Um, and do you believe in income and wealth redistribution? Um, yes, I do. Um, so, you know, sometimes these labels are fairly meaningless. Um, I'm not terribly clear uh, about my opponent's economic policies, to be honest. Um, but uh, I think people can see mine where, you know, when I was cabinet minister of energy and climate change, I brought together state subsidies and state policies with private investment and nearly quadrupled Britain's renewable power and made us the world leading offshore wind. Uh, so that was a combination of state and private. So I don't know where, where you put that in the political spectrum. I call it good liberal Democrat policy. Because I actually find that quite interesting, because when we had uh, Layla on here last week, um, she essentially said that actually um, anyone, and I'll, I basically can quote her directly, was anyone who doesn't talk about the economy during this leadership election um, is essentially doing the party, or any leadership contender who doesn't talk about the economy during this leadership election, is doing the party a disservice. 
um, which I was quite interested in, if you think then, that she doesn't have very clear economic policies. Well, the economy uh, is massive and the issues over the next uh, decade are going to be dominated by economics and jobs, obviously, and also how we get the economy to go green. So that combination of getting jobs for young people, for people across the country, every region, nation or country, and uh, using that to tackle climate change, a sort of major economic transition. That are, those are the key economic issues. I've got a very clear set of policy ideas there, a clear background. I'm an economist by postgraduate as well as ordinary degree. I put myself through night school in economics as a part of the economics advising on the Treasury Select Committee. I've been around economic policy quite a lot. Um, so, um, you know, I feel well equipped for that and being clear in my ideas. I'll let others speak for themselves whether they think they've got a clear idea of, of, of other candidates. So just talking a little bit about the environment for the moment and actually something that we have been focusing on recently, which is essentially we ran a whole campaign into different things that we think that we can learn more from the Nordic countries. Um, what do you think about Norway and how they've introduced so many electric cars onto the road? Um, the, the slightly odd mixture, which is tax breaks, but also a lot being funded through oil. Um, what do you think about doing something similar to that in the UK, but instead of using uh, funding through oil, you can tax stuff like environmentally harmful cars and then use the revenue for environmentally friendly ones. So essentially tax both regulation. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole set of ways that you might want to fast track electric vehicles. The Norwegians have been with their massive oil wealth have managed to go quicker than almost any other country. I think they've got to phase mm. out for petrol and diesel cars of 2025. Mm. Uh, Liberal Democrats are saying 2030. I'm very keen on that. Uh, the government's saying 2035. So the, the, the question is, what's what's credible, what's practical uh, and how do you do it? Um, I think you can actually go really quickly once you get the charging infrastructure there. I think the charging infrastructure is going to be critical. And that's clearly a state role, whether through regulation um, and tax uh, incentives or, or some other mechanism. Um, the, the, the key thing is having a very, very clear determination that you've got a date. Mm. And um, that date can drive so much of government if you have clarity on the, the, that, that objective. And, you know, there's a whole set of different charging infrastructures we could look at. Um, the Norwegians, I think, will probably pay a slight price for going early. Hmm. Um, if you saw what happened with Germany with um, green power, their power, uh, particularly from, from solar, but also from wind, is extremely expensive. Yeah. What we managed to achieve with my policies was get lots of renewable power, but at a much smaller, uh, much lower price because we used you know, competition auctions and, and, and really dragged in uh, high levels of private investment and got supply chains going, created jobs around the country. And that holistic approach um, drove the renewable electricity innovation. And I would want to do something similar on, on electric vehicles. So I'm going to now move on to a topic other than the environment, which has actually been spoken about a lot less. In fact, I don't think I've heard it mentioned yet. This might be the first time in the leadership election it has been. Okay, okay. Um, but the 11 plus or more widely selection at 11 is something that Centre has been focusing on a lot recently. We're currently writing a paper on it. And at the moment, it is seeing grammar schools with disproportionately low levels of disabled and poorer students and disproportionately high levels of private school educated and tutored children. This is despite being a system that's entirely paid for by the state. So would you support banning academic selection that takes place at 11? What I'd like to do is see whether one can in the communities that it's supported. And let's remember, the vast majority of, of the country don't have grammar schools. So this is quite a localised uh, question in a small number of areas, including my own constituency, I should uh, tell you. So I've really engaged with it. Uh, and the sorts of issues that you're talking about, particularly disabled access uh, and making sure that people with special needs and people from uh, lower income backgrounds have have greater access to state-funded education, I think is critical. Um, I've always been supporting of, of the party view where you could allow local referenda to, to get rid of um, uh, 
grammar schools where in the small areas they exist. That seems to me quite a democratic approach. Um, and it also puts real pressure on the need to reform those grammar schools who aren't um, opening up to the community and, and opening up to those people who need extra support. So the interesting thing that we found in our research was that there were almost none, and I mean sort of less than 10 schools in the entirety of the UK out of the 100 and I think it is 60 or 20, somewhere around that area of grammar schools overall, that actually had uh, an average or even above average in a few cases of disabled students. So the, the issue that we basically have is that in, in terms of this, because it is a minority of people, um, and because this issue actually with grammar schools in some places in Cornwall and Lincolnshire and basically dotted quite a lot around England, that we'd sort of say, is it maybe more of a national issue that actually in some situations the government needs to step in and say, actually, no, because this test, which was designed by someone who believed in the inheritance of memory through uh, basically from father to son, essentially, um, so is, is a system, and it was even included in the BBC documentary on, on eugenics, um, would that be somewhere where the, the government maybe has to step in rather than local referenda because it's such a large issue? Well, the government should certainly step in to make sure that um, people with disabilities um, are not discriminated against. I mean, discrimination can't be at a local level. Discrimination has to be at a national level. That's absolutely sure, uh, for sure. And speaking as someone uh, as a father of a disabled child, um, I am particularly conscious of the need to ensure that children don't miss out. You know, only, every child has just got one, one chance in life. And um, I've been a passionate campaigner on special educa education needs and, and uh, support for disabled children. And of course, there are some high high functioning disabled children, mm. um, uh, not just for, for physical disabled disabled disabilities, but but other learning disabilities where they can be very high functioning. And one has to make sure that uh, no part of the system is uh, discriminating against them. So, for example, I'm the patron of an organisation called Disability Law Service, yeah. and Disability Law Service has just published a report. Um, of how local authorities are discriminating against autistic children because under the CARE Act um, autistic children are entitled well, all, all disabled children and all children with special needs are entitled to care assessments and it's quite extraordinary that according to our research 41 local authorities were actively discriminating against autistic children um, and that doesn't just affect their education it affects a whole range of uh, issues in their life including their care including their access to, to leisure facilities and so on with knock-on effects to their their families so for me uh, leveling up the paying field for disabled children and children's special education needs is, is something of a passion and something I've a huge amount on and whether it's grammar schools whether it's local authorities frankly wherever it is um, we've got to make sure that uh, disability is is uh, not something that prevents prevents people getting on. So one of the interesting uh, conversations I had, because actually uh, my girlfriend is essentially on the, the high functioning end of it, um, and she went to a grammar school and essentially her issue was that if we started, for instance, putting in quotas or stuff like that, which has been one of the other suggestions, um, that essentially that would probably just end up with people who had either high functioning or lower level disabilities getting in. Um, and the, the grammar schools have already started running tests, uh, essentially that are um, less difficult for people to pass, but in poorer areas so that they can increase their intake with us, essentially without damaging the reputation of their schools. So essentially my interest was, you know, aside from sort of local referendums, is there anything you would do specifically at national government level to tackle the issue itself in terms of the fact that selection seems to by default because there's lots of different schools running at lots of different systems of selection at the age of 11 but all getting the same result of not having almost any disabled students in their schools is there anything specifically that you do well, at a national yeah. level well i think it's got to be uh, go far wider than just grammar schools um mm. if you look at uh, ordinary state schools and i've seen this in my own constituency you'll see some who miraculously managed to have fewer special needs children. Yeah. 
you will see some who are far more inclusive than others. Um, some who um, are actually almost the repository of all the children that other schools refuse to take. Hmm. Um, so I, I think it goes, it's actually a much deeper problem in my view. Uh, and I think, um, do I have the off the shelf solution? No, but here's an idea. Um, Nick Clegg, when he was an MEP, he wrote a, a pamphlet which influenced me called the, which was basically looking at the Dutch system um, where they uh, gave more money to children with disadvantaged backgrounds. And yeah. when I was an education spokesperson, I took this up and developed the policy. And then Sarah Taylor and David Laws took it on and it, we got it into government. It's called the pupil premium. And as a governor on a, on a local school, I've seen how, how amazing that has been in, in bringing people forward. I'm really proud to be part of it. And I've talked to governors and head teachers who think it's one of the most progressive things that's happened post-war, actually. And it's a liberal Democrat uh, idea. Mm. And so I toyed with the idea of a similar thing for special needs children and disabled children. And why would that be? If you go back to Nick's original pamphlet and certainly the way he designed it, the great thing about the pupil premium is it encouraged schools who were turning away children from more disadvantaged backgrounds because they were you know, worried about their tables and the rest of it. They encouraged them to actually take them because they were worth more, more money. Hmm. They, were, they were being given some funds to actually engage with the children and bring them on. And could we find a similar approach to special education, special education needs and disability? Um, of course, there are funds there, but they're very bureaucratic. And um, the EHCP, the Education Health Care Plan system, um, which I know very well, not just for uh, my own son, but from helping constituents, mm. um, that is working quite perversely for some schools. So, mm. There's definitely some tools there and some good Liberal Democrat thinking from the past where you could address this through a system of uh, incentives. Um, and you might also want to ensure that Ofsted has some powers to uh, to inspect on this basis and point out where schools had less than what you might have expected as an intake of children with particular difficulties. So the, the interesting thing is um, essentially the, the way that we correlated a lot of the data on uh, disabilities in grammar schools was looking where, because essentially on all of the reports, Ofsted will mention whether or not the, they have a high or low level of disabilities and will go into uh, a bit of detail in some of them as to, you know, what the different students were with different disabilities, obviously not by name, but just uh, in terms of different categories. Um, one interesting thing that I was, I was sort of picked up on was the bit about some comprehensive not taking uh, disabled students, um, which is in some ways I feel that this, this issue ends up being one of sort of order of magnitudes kind of thing, because in comprehensive schools, for instance, even if you look at the top best comprehensives, they still have, for instance, more poorer students in than grammar schools do. So even at the very worst end of the comprehensive system, it even seems to be better than the grammar school system with selection in place. Um, and the other question is, do you think that more money to these schools will help when a lot of them are looking at grades and they're looking at their reputation? And if they can't get people up to an A-star kind of level, they're really not very interested. I still remember um, the fact that my girlfriend said that essentially her school was um, keeping people behind if they got below, uh, I think it was an A, um, essentially for mandatory classes to help them uh, with learning because they weren't doing good enough. So well, do you think well, in that situation, money really will be enough of an incentive to these, you know, schools who aren't really, don't seem to be very interested in the first place in taking anyone who will basically achieve below an A star grade? Well, I have a real um, odd characteristic. I like the evidence. Uh, I like seeing what evidence is. Mm. And uh, going with that. So, you know, uh, if I was Secretary of State for Education, I'd be wanting to look at this because we can't have policies of any type of school that are discriminatory. Yeah. Uh, we can't allow uh, young children um, to be discriminated indirectly, intentionally, unintentionally. Yeah. That's just not acceptable. Um, 
uh, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that money might be the only uh, solution. That's why I, I brought in Ofsted. Mm. Um, but you may need to do more things. I mean, w- one of the things I think that is a problem is how we hold schools to account because there has to be accountability mechanism, yeah. but the league tables have had perverse results. I remember when I was going around schools as education spokesperson, I was really alarmed by talking to a number of teachers and a number of academics. Hmm. And it was clear that um, children, this is a state school, just an ordinary state primary, um, but it, you know, you could replicate this across the piece. Yeah. Um, where the children that they were really intensely coaching were the ones in the middle of the uh, band who they wanted to get over uh, to, um, to, to get to the next band up. So, you know, there were ones who, as long as they got into, they could just get into the right band, fine, that was okay. The ones that were definitely going to get into the next band, uh, that was okay. But to really get their results up, they would hothouse small, a number of youngsters to get them to the next band, even though that probably wasn't where they were. Yeah. And they would get criticisms from either the, the juniors, if it was an infant's junior system or the secondary that, you know, you, you'd put, given us these children that you said were, you know, uh, level five and actually they were really level four. Yeah. And so across the system, the league tables have produced some perverse practices, which were discriminatory and um, not really been effective in holding um schools to account indeed have incentivized bad behavior hmm. um so that and indeed our policies is quite good on this that needs to be looked at and indeed um i'd be happy to see a different way of measuring i I'm, i do think there needs to be accountability but um you can get accountability from different systems for example sampling systems um is a is a is a really good way there are diagnostic test systems so one, one can ensure that parents and the system knows that we're getting good uh, value for money that actually children are getting good education um, without the this, this sort of very formulaic approach we've got now which can result in quite perverse outcomes. So my final question on this issue is essentially you said that you're interested in seeing uh, essentially the evidence on grammar schools so would you be interested uh, when it comes out in a few months time we've got a paper on grammar schools coming um, in having a look at that and seeing what you think in terms of whether it changes your mind? Yeah of, of course I mean um, I'm always open to, to, to new ideas and I'm not and let's be clear I'm not in favour of extending grammar schools not the uh, not the least Mm. And indeed, I think they need to be seriously questioned. The, the only issue is whether or not um, a national government comes in and tells local communities what they should have. That's the issue for me. And there's a sort of tension in liberalism there. Um, I, I do remember a time when um, local authorities and local communities had a much bigger say in their education. Mm. And it, funny enough, in that time, education was much broader, richer, more diverse, more more uh, uh, children centric and rather than having these sort of national um, organizations running schools across the country, you had networks of local schools helping Mm. each other out, providing a richer curriculum. Um, That's always been, I think, quite attractive. It's one of the reasons why I'm a localist and a liberal. So it's quite interesting with the, the sort of local aspects. One of the, the, the policies that the Lib Dem pushed uh, under sort of Paddy Ashdown era um, and, and after was sort of the academy programme. So on that one, do you have any worries that essentially the, the moving away of power essentially towards local schools and really the, the national government, as in the Department of Education, being the one that's responsible for them rather than the local council takes away some of the local accountability that those schools schools had as a, a community schools yeah no i, I think um you slightly misrepresent paddy there um academies came on a bit after paddy what paddy was talking about was local management of schools hmm. um and so that wasn't centralization um, what paddy was doing was making sure that schools themselves could have more control over the budget and didn't always have to go to the town hall now that is uh, a good liberal approach Hmm. where you've still got a local uh, focus, um, uh, but the schools themselves um, have some more control as well. That's a very different beast from what we've ended up with under with the Tories and indeed part of New Labour, where you've had um, a fragmentation of local 
school systems and networks where the role of the local authority is dramatically reduced um, and in a much more uh, centralizing way than anything that, that Paddy would have signed up for. So, you know, just take the classic example of school place planning. Um, it seems to me uh, self-evident, really, that the local authority works with the local community and the local schools in planning the future places, getting data from maybe some, some central or regional sources, um, but having a control of that. We've seen under the Tories and Michael Gove's uh, shockingly bad experiment of free schools um, that place planning is um, a disaster. I can point to examples of my constituency where they've wasted huge amounts of money, millions of pounds, uh, because they chose sites for schools and bought them with no, no discussion with local councillors or the local, uh, local community or even the local MP. Uh, and we could have told them it was really a bad place to, to suggest for a school. Mm. And so um, centralised place planning uh, and this sort of randomness that we have at the moment is extremely damaging. Um, and costly. So it, it, it fails on every account. Um, and that's just one example, I can give you more, hmm. where a more localist approach to uh, education policy um, would be in the interest of the schools, in the interest of the children, uh, and of course, in, in the interest of the taxpayer as well. So I'm quite interested in that. Um, if you're uh, at all concerned then about when businesses get involved in, in schools, because that's been one of the big things that we've heard quite a lot about, um, certainly in our think tank, is is people worried about um, academy programs or whatever, where there's or mainly trusts, where there are business involvement in it. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Is that would that be part of uh, what sounds like uh, quite a, a reforming kind of idea of what academies should actually be? Well, um, I'll tell you the truth. I haven't looked at this in, in uh, minute detail. Um, in terms of business involvement in education, I've no problem with uh, young people learning about the world of work and the world of business, and the world of enterprise. That seems to be sensible to a, a rounded curriculum. Mm -hmm. What I'd be against is uh, businesses you know, getting control of curriculums and and public resources um, and um, some sort of, I'm not suggesting this is happening, but you know, you could see the Tories wanting to go there, some sort of behind the scenes privatization. That, that doesn't feature in my, my approach at all. Yeah. Um, uh, so it really depends what, what you're meaning uh, precisely about the business in, involvement and, and quite what that's bringing. If it's bringing um, wider experience, well, I'm not against that. If it's bringing some sort of control um, away from uh, elected people and specialists in the public sector, I'm, I'm, I'm more nervous about that. So very interesting. Um, so moving now quickly on to uh, one of the topics that you and Layla in this leadership election have agreed on. We spoke to Layla last week uh, about universal basic income. Um, she essentially mentioned a report from Compass looking at how it would be funded um, and essentially suggested, I think it was about 40 to 60 pounds a week, uh, which I later wrote in Lib Dem Voice. I'd been having a, a discussion with someone who was uh, an asylum seeker who is currently actually on um, Centre's executive, um, who was struggling to live on £45 a week. So I was a bit worried about the actual level of it. So what would you, in terms of universal basic income, how would you fund it and what level would you put it at? Well, to be fair to Layla, uh, when I've heard her talk about this, she says, and of course, there'd be other benefits on top, like housing benefits and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, I may be in competition with her, but I think one should be fairer fair about how I think she's described it uh, and, and equally um, that sort of level that we're talking about is not an unreasonable starting place if you're going to do a big reform like this um, uh, I think you do need to to phase it in um, and my history on this goes back um, quite a long way I started work for Paddy Ashdown and Alan Beath as their economics advisor in 1989 uh, some time ago and my first task was to develop and uh, cost a universal basic income and we called it the citizen's income and it was passed and became party policy in, in 1990 I think 
and was the party's policy for five years. So um, this is a subject that I know like the back of my hand, although I'm a little bit rusty, but I know the basics of it. And at the time, the big debate was, and actually through the early 1990s, did you go for a full basic income mm. or did you go for a partial basic income? And the analysis showed uh, at the time, as I recall, the good thing about a partial basic income, not only was it more affordable and you could bring the system in, but also it had a lot of the advantages that you're trying to get from the overall system with lesser disruption. So let's be clear what, what I'm interested in the universal basic income for. I'm interested in it to make sure that um, unpaid carers get help and get recognition. Mm. They get nothing at the moment, or the vast majority get nothing, because you only get a carer's allowance if you work for 35 hours a week and can prove it, caring for someone. The reality is that mostly women, this is a very, very uh, egalitarian policy with respect to gender, and also actually black and ethnic minority communities, uh, the unpaid carers are mainly women and, and often from, from always, but often from black and ethnic minority populations. So recognizing unpaid care, which you would do through UBI, would be actually transformative and would be one of the biggest um, you know, wins for women um, uh, one could imagine. So that's one of the reasons I'm attracted to UBI. Uh, there are other reasons too, and that they are people who, for whom the benefit system and, and economic banks and the rest of it can be very confusing and difficult to access for different reasons. So let me give you some concrete examples. Homeless people often miss out because they maybe have chaotic lives and you know they may not be able to get themselves to uh, the the benefits office and fill in the forms and you know, this, that's a reality of life a reality of homeless people i've i've helped over the time mm -hmm. and then you've got people who move in and out of work who move between areas uh, uh people who find for whatever reason the conditionality tests for work conditionality income conditionality or whatever that they they fail them in some way or other and so the current tax and benefit system in, in its byzantine nature actually misses out on a lot of people and we as liberals have to, um, are, are, you know, face the facts that a lot of individuals are not properly helped, supported and recognised under the current tax and benefit system. So mm. question, can you improve it? I think uh, a uh, citizen's income, starting at a low level, could make a big difference, bearing in mind that the vast majority of people in the population actually wouldn't see any difference because their tax allowance or their pension or some other payment would actually be their effectively their universal basic income. So what a UBI does in my view is it, it helps the most vulnerable and in particular it helps unpaid carers. So uh, just onto the, the point about housing that I mentioned earlier. So for asylum seekers, they have housing provided for them. Um, by the government, which is the, the reason why uh, I made that um, essential comparison. Um, the, the worry there was as well that the um, Compass report, um, which I believe she was referring to, essentially also mentioned getting rid of the tax-free allowance at the same time. Um, and so one of the interesting feedback that we got from members was also that it wasn't something that you could kind of live off of if you're also removing other programs or any other programs at the same time. Um, then there was the worry that you would have an issue where people were essentially receiving either less money um, or on the other hand, the issue is, of course, how to actually pay for a program because if at any point it is going to become something where people can actually live off of universal basic income, um, in order to save the most money from existing benefits, for instance, um, by scrapping those so that everyone has uh, a set amount of money that they can all live on. How would you pay for that? Well, I, I, I don't recognise in what you described the universal basic income that I helped design for the party in 1989-90 or the ones that I've read about over time. Um, I don't know about the Compass report. Um, they can speak for themselves. Um, but... Um, we were very clear back in 1989-90 that um, the a citizen's income, um, it would be frankly impossible to include housing costs into that because you would get to a very high level. 
Um, and so, you know, the, as in always, in every aspect of tax and benefits, the devil is in the detail. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we took a year to finesse this with consultations, academics coming in. And, um, you know, if the party um, uh, went down this route, as I hope it would do under my leadership, I would want a very thorough piece of work done. This is not something you adopt overnight. You you say, look, in principle, let's have a look at this, which mm. we I think we really, really should for the reasons I've outlined, the impact on, on in, in, in unpaid carers, which is a very big part of my agenda. I'm talking about a greener, fairer, more caring society. Mm. And so it's the caring element and the egalitarian element comes from me that really attracts me to this, this, this notion. Um, and I would want to make sure that um, in designing something, it was both A, affordable, obviously, otherwise it's not going to work, uh, but B, was the best way to meet the goals that I'm trying to achieve and I think the party would want to achieve. Yeah. So moving on now to another policy area. Um, and this one is to do with Brexit, um, which last time on Victoria Derbyshire was the last question that I ended up asking. Um, and this time I'm essentially just going to ask, um, being that we're now outside the European Union, if you had to choose what you thought was the best Brexit model, what would it be and why? Oh, it's very difficult this because I just think Brexit is a total disaster in any form. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm fairly, uh, fairly clear about that. But um, essentially, as a internationalist and someone a pro-European and someone who believes in cooperation between countries that's in our mutual interest, hmm. um, the model has to be one that maximises that ability to cooperate. Um, and that's cooperation economically, uh, environmentally, uh, security wise, health wise, uh, and so on, because, you know, we're about to hit probably the, the deepest recession in our country's history for, well, for at least for 300 years, according to some reports. Um, the idea that a Brexit that puts barriers to trade is sensible in that environment is complete nonsense. It's not sensible in any environment, frankly, but even more absurd in this environment. So, you know, I would prefer a Brexit where in the single market and the customs union, because that's in the interest of the people of Britain. And that means we'll uh, be a rule taker. Um, but by the way, if you go for the full on no deal Brexit, we'll be a rule taker anyway in practice. Uh, but you just don't get any benefits of it. So, um, you know, that's the on the economic side. On the climate change side, which I'm fairly obsessed with, and I, I led European-wide uh, negotiations on, on climate. I set up something called the Green Growth Group when I was at the European Council for the Environment, European Council for Energy. And I managed to persuade the rest of Europe to adopt some very stringent climate change targets, certainly way more ambitious than the Commission thought and the Tories thought possible. And I did that because I was at the table and with climate change being such a big issue, I would want to find some way of shaping a Brexit where we could be, have some influence at least. I mean, we're not going to have the influence we would have if we were a full member, but, you know, we've got to work with other countries on this. We've got to. And if I, if I, if I may, I know this is a long answer, but it's a critical question and many sided. Um, I'm very worried about security going forward because uh, the sorts of Brexit being talked about will leave our country um, less secure. We'll leave um, our people, individuals and families and communities less safe because at the moment we benefit from um, partnership and cooperation on a whole range of crime fighting tools, whether it's a European arrest warrant, Europol, Eurojust of multiple number of databases that the police and security services can use. And because the government says, well, we want to, we won't be overseen by the European Court of Justice, um, it, we will be outside a lot of these crime fighting mechanisms. And that really alarms me. And it shows how soft the Tories have gone on crime just for their Brexit ideology. And so, you know, you asked me the Brexit, it's the one that keeps as many of the benefits as possible, which are so huge um, and enables us to find a way in due course back when, you know, people come to their senses. 
So I'm interested then, would you say, uh, so something that uh, within Centre, because we have a mixture of Remainers and Leavers, I think at the moment we actually have more Remain supporters than uh, Leave supporters. Um, but one thing that we've been pushing for for quite a long while is essentially the Norway option. So if you're a Leave supporter within our organisation, it's more, a, you know, we think this is the best way to leave the European Union. And for Remain supporters, it's if we must leave, then this is probably the best option. So is that something that in the, the meantime, before rejoining as an option, um, that you would support or are you interested in basically just supporting rejoin from essentially the, the get-go? No, I, although my heart, my heart will never leave Europe <laughs> uh, and I know where I'd like to be. Yeah. Um, as a leader of the party, one also has to use your head. And my head says that if we were to start campaigning for rejoin now, uh, for a media rejoin the next election, um, we would be committing political suicide. Hmm. Um, Revoke went down very, very badly because it looked like we were deliberately not listening to the British people at all. And we didn't only just turn off Leave voters, in fact, all Leave voters by and large, we were annoying Remain voters as well. Uh, and, you know, I think if having just gone through that lesson, uh, all the mistakes that are made around that, the idea we should... Uh, followed up with rejoin for the next election seems to me tinnied at, 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 at best. So um, while that might be the overall direction of travel, I think you want to be a bit cuter in how one prosecutes that. So that's mm. why we talk about cooperation and how the benefits of cooperation, if we cooperate on this, we cooperate on that, cooperate on this measure, you know, it would be in our interest, wouldn't it? And gradually bringing people round to the, the reality that cooperation is a good thing. Um, now, does that lead you to the Norwegian model? It might well do. Um, it may maybe be Norway plus, you know, um, always ambitious, Norway plus, plus, plus. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, N Norway struggled to get into some of the crime fighting mechanisms. It's, it's taken a decade and it's still not in them properly. Um, and if you care about security of your people um, and you care about being able to tackle international crime and these awful crime gangs that cause so much misery in many communities, then you want to find ways that you can, particip you can participate in them. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I say, Norway could be a starting point, but I, th I think we need to go further than that. So I'm quite interested that you sort of mentioned the, the Norway Plus idea, which has been mentioned um, a fair amount. Um, sort of a quick answer, but just I'm assuming that is Norway Plus a customs union. Uh, uh, plus, plus well, I, I said plus, 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 you see, I told you. I'm <laughs> there was uh, one plus uh, and then there was three, and I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I mean, the customs union would be absolutely uh, first order. Um, uh, and, you know, let's just, let's just focus on that for a second. You know, these Brexiteer Tories, you know, they say, well, we'll be great in global Britain. We'll be able to go and make all these trade deals and so on. Well, so far, they've come up with trade deals that wouldn't be transparent and Parliament couldn't, couldn't scrutinise. We've seen tr potential trade deals with the, the USA, which would be disastrous for our farmers, reduce animal welfare and consumer uh, uh, standards and food standards. Um, I don't know how the trade deal with China looks like it's going, but at the moment, probably not very well from the look, <laughs> look of things. So once you've excluded America and China, uh, this global Britain doesn't look like it's going very far to me. Um, and as a trade minister, former trade minister uh, for two years and um, uh, co-authored something called the Trade and Investment White Paper and sat at EU trade councils and sat in uh, the WTO in Geneva, uh, the, the Doha round and saw how that failed. Um, today's trading environment for the world looks absolutely disastrous. Mm. Disastrous. So any so-called freedom outside the customs union as put forward by the, the Tory Brexiteers is an illusion. It's a dangerous illusion. It's a damaging illusion. And we should be in the customs union now. And if that's Norway plus fine, and the other plus pluses are on things like climate change, or on things like security. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, you can see <laughs> that I'm not very keen on Brexit. And the, the closer we, the closer relationship we can have as possible is what, what, what I want. So one of the things I, I find quite interesting, I think um, there's the sort of a, an element of um, almost, because uh, I've been talking about self-Brexit since 2016, probably before the referendum now. Um, and it's one of the interesting things, because when we're talking about sort of Norway Plus and that, 
um, Norway plus customs union itself, because EFTA and being a member of EFTA means signing up to their 30 odd deals um, outside of their block means that that plus a customs union doesn't really fit in. So one of the interesting things I've found is just in terms of having that conversation around post-Brexit options is essentially how will you as leader make sure that the Liberal Democrats will essentially get the discussion right and make sure that, you know, we make sure that essentially we go for for options that are feasible because a lot of the time when I've spoken within the Lib Dems, there has been stuff like Canada Plus or Norway Plus or essentially things with pluses on that not necessarily will mix together properly because of other elements of that model, such as the Norway model or the Canada model. Well, I'm afraid this is where I take you out of the think tank world and I put you into the, rea- the world of, uh, no disrespect to you or uh, your members, the world of reality. Because the world of reality will be um, building on whatever we end up with at the end of this year, either a no deal or a hard deal Brexit. Hmm. And that'll be the baseline we, we go from. And that's a very different situation from the baseline we are now prior to agreeing that. So when one talks about where one wants to be, one's got to take it from the reality, not least because the other side will be probably pick sick of negotiations around Brexit, but would be my guess. And they just had a five day marathon looking at how they're going to help each other um, recover after COVID. And, it, you know, like any group of countries, they've got an, a, a whole range of different issues on their on their plates. Mm. And um, I think the day after the Brexit deal is done or the no deal is consummated, mm. um, that's probably not the right word for this one. Um, the day after, then we'll need to look at the rubble. Yeah. Uh, and they'll probably not want to immediately go into discussions about uh, the next stage, would be my guess. Yeah. Um, having negotiated at the European Union a lot in the Parliament, the Commission, the Ministerial Council, um, I know how many friends we have across Europe how deeply they are regretting this whole thing hmm. and how many of them would want to see us back again um, as Liberal Democrats would. Um, but it's the, the policies of the art of the possible. And um, sometimes one's going to have to review what it is we end up with and what legacy Johnson and his cabal bequeathed to us. And the think tanks and the political parties will then have to look at that. And, you know, if it's possible to move from that to a Norway plus, plus, plus easily, Hmm. well, fine. That's couldn't be happier. Um, If it's possible to, it goes so badly wrong that even some of the more ardent Brexiteers realise what a complete and utter catastrophe it is and they completely change their mind. Well, let's take that opportunity if that comes. But, you know, um, uh, sometimes in in politics, you have to have a degree of patience. Mm. And um, it's frustrating because, you know, you know how you would like the world to be. Um, But as a Liberal Democrat, you learn to have a lot of patience (laughs) uh, (laughs) and you learn to take the opportunities when they come. And when things don't go your way, as occasionally they haven't in the last few years, you try and learn the lessons. And you try and work out what is the strategy to build back, whether it's uh, on Europe, whether it's on the party's electoral fortunes. And, and you know, there's a lot of claptrap talked about, um, about quick fixes, you know, do this, do that, it will be sorted out. It's not like that. Life just isn't like that. Polit- politics really isn't. You need um, some real vision about where you want to go. Uh, and I'm talking about a greener, fairer, more caring society, in case you missed that. Um, but but I'm bringing into that a degree of experience, uh, you know, 30 years in the party, 20 years in parliament, five years in government and a lifetime of experience, um, particularly of caring, which I think uh, will help the party think through some of the challenges that we've got, because we're in a bit of a mess at the moment, whether it's over Brexit or anything else. And um, uh, I just hope people reflect about what the best way is to 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 write that the situation we're in 
um, and realize that there is absolutely no quick fix. So unsurprisingly, I suppose, to defend think tankery almost, um, but in the, in the sense of what I was saying, it was more that um, rather than in the future, Norway Plus not being possible was more that during sort of the referendum and afterwards, we even had some more pro-Norway um, members of parliament who were then putting out ideas such as that. So it was more the worry rather than that specific model not being possible, just that making sure we actually get all of the messaging and everything else to do with the Norway model or whatever model we decide to choose, be it the Norway model or whatever else, correct, just because obviously we don't want to essentially sell something, realise we can't do it, and then you know realise that that organisation doesn't allow it and so on and so forth was more what I was getting at rather than, you know, the Norway model will, you know, never be able to add a plus on or anything like that. Um, if we move just to the final question now, um, what are the three main reasons you would give to members of centre who are also members of the Lib Dems as to why they should vote for you in this leadership election? Uh, vision, experience and judgment. Uh, I think my vision of a greener economy where you bring together the economic challenges we face, which are of a ginormous order, and the climate change challenge. And you have a real vision about how you'll use this as a moment to make that shift. Um, that's got to be critical for a distinctive Liberal Democrat position. And I would add to that the need for a fairer society, um, particularly focusing on education, which you've touched on, but also housing, which we haven't. And after greener and fairer, I'd want my vision to be about more caring, because if you look at health and social care, the other parties fight and scrabble over the NHS mm. and fail, fail to realise if you want to sort out the NHS, you have to sort out social care yeah. and care for elderly, care for young adults who um, are in the care sector, care for physically uh, uh, disabled people, the whole the whole spectrum so that vision of a greener fairer more caring society is, is where i is my starting place but then that experience that i bring um both as a carer in my uh, own life i cared for my mother mm. uh, my father died when i was uh, four and then my mother became terminally ill when i was 12 so i was a young carer before she died when i was 15 then i lived with my grandparents and eventually my that uh, granddad died and my uh, nana became frail and i was her main carer for for a decade or so and I now have a disabled son uh, who's 12 and uh, my wife and I do a lot of caring for him because he can't walk or talk and has got learning disabilities. So that experience of life as a carer, I think, equips me for this critical agenda that post-COVID is going to be more significant than, than ever before. And I add to that lifetime experience and experience uh, in, in, in politics of, as I said before, 30 years in the party, 20 years in parliament, working under many leaders and seeing the machinations of, of politics. Uh, and then, um, then the experience in government, both as a junior minister and as a cabinet minister, uh, negotiating the EU, the United Nations, uh, beating the Tories on negotiations and serving on the National Security Council. So I think I bring some serious vision to it, uh, experience to, to the vision. And combine that vision experience, the key thing that a leader has to do is exercise judgment. And that's particularly in negotiations, it's particularly in uh, inter-party relationships. And you know, this, the challenge I think for the party uh, ahead of the next election and beyond is, you know, can we develop, first of all, a very distinctive identity for us and recover the lost ground of recent years, but then use that to fashion a progressive liberal alternative uh, to the Tories, which will mean, uh, is there a possibility for us to find a working relationship, an understanding, shall we say, mm. with Keir Starmer's Labour Party? Um, and I think I bring some you know, tried and tested judgment to, to, to that issue having worked to the feet of Paddy Ashdown when he was doing similar things with Tony Blair in the 90s, um, and having in, in my life been involved in many negotiations in politics, in business, uh, and at the international level. So that judgment, which I think is quite essential, is something that I hope I can add to the vision and experience. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Centre podcast today. Really a pleasure to interview. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Nice to see you. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you.